You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Bhutan on the Calvary Brighton Podcast. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been to Israel, but I remember the first time that Amy and I went to Israel. This was back in 1997. We saw a lot of, of amazing things, but, 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 but one thing that we saw that was really interesting was we saw this, this barbed wire fence outside of a hiking trail. And, and what was interesting is that it had a sign on it, it had this sign on it, a sign that said, Danger Mines, as in landmines. And, and, you know, because they had all these different landmines left over from, from all kinds of different wars, whether it's the Six-Day War in Israel or this war or that war. So in other words, as you're hiking on this trail, you need to watch your step, you need to walk wisely, or you might step on a landmine. Well, now, in the same way, as, as we walk through the journey of life, how many of us feel like, like, like we're walking through a minefield? You know, some of you uh, might be in marriages where you, you, you feel like if it's, if it's just one wrong step, everything might blow up. Others of us, you know, you might work in an environment where you feel like you always have to look over your shoulder. You, you don't know who you can trust. It feels like you're swimming with the sharks. Or maybe you have a, a manager, a boss, and, and you feel like they're out to get you. They're always looking for any reason to let you go. Well, now, in this passage this morning, that is exactly the kind of environment that David finds himself in. It's as if he's walking through a minefield. In fact, uh, one of the key Hebrew words in this chapter this morning, it's repeated four different times, and I'll point it out as we go, but one of the key Hebrew words in this passage is the Hebrew word yaskil. And one of the ways that this word yaskil is translated is walk wisely. Walk wisely. Why? Well, because, because when you're walking through a minefield, every step, every step you take when it's a matter of life or death, you need to walk wisely. You need to watch your step. And that is how David has to walk in this chapter this morning. But now as we pick up the first four verses, we see that as David is walking wisely, he was not walking alone. And so in verse 1 it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of, of David, and David loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to, to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, as we look at this chapter, in fact, really the whole book of 1 Samuel, we see this contrast between Saul versus David. And on the one hand, you know, Saul is on his way down, whereas David was on his way up. Saul was, was in the flesh, David was in the spirit. Saul is, is driven by, by fear and paranoia, whereas David is walking wisely. And so now on the heels of, of, of David's victory over Goliath, we now see that, that David's approval rating, his public approval rating, is going sky high and it's getting higher by the minute, whereas Saul's public approval rating is lower than it's ever been before and it's getting lower by the minute. And as a result, David now finds himself having to navigate the minefield of, of Saul's jealousy, Saul's paranoia, and Saul's insanity. And not just in this chapter, but for the next decade and a half. But what we also see in this chapter is that God in his grace is, is making sure that, that as, as David is walking through this minefield, he doesn't have to walk alone. He gives him a friend. He gives him a partner. He gives him Jonathan. And by the way, who better to, to, to help David navigate the, the, these treacherous waters than the son of Saul, Jonathan? 
The, the, you know, Jonathan, who, who, had, who had to grow up in the dysfunction and, and, and the insanity under Saul his whole life. And so now, verse 3 tells us that they enter into a covenant. It says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, sometimes, you know, from, from a modern perspective, we read a verse like this, and sometimes we read too much into this verse. We read too much in, in between the lines. Sometimes we read a verse like this, and, and, and we wonder, well, was there kind of a gay love kind of a thing going on here? And now, now, listen, the reason we, we struggle with this and read it this way is because we are reading it from a different time period. We, we're reading it from a different culture. We don't understand that time, nor do we understand that culture. But one of the things that will help us understand is this word covenant. Now, of course, a covenant is just a, a legal binding contract, but the word itself is a Hebrew word that means to cut in blood. In other words, blood had to be shed when you made a covenant. So what would happen is the two people making a covenant would often sacrifice an animal like, like a lamb, and they would cut it in half down the spine. Then they'd part it into two different parts. Then the people making the covenant would walk between those animal parts, having the blood of the animal sprayed on them in the process. And it was sort of a symbolic way of saying, if, if I break my end of the deal, if I break my end of this covenant with this person, then may what was done to this animal be done to me. And so covenants were for life. They were cut in blood. Now, in addition to the sacrifice, when a covenant was made, typically the two people making the covenant would also exchange gifts. But not just any gift. You had to exchange gifts that were so personal, no one else could give something like this to you. So it's on that note that Jonathan literally gives David the clothes off of his own back. Now, what it says is he gave him his robe, that is his outer robe. Doesn't mean that Jonathan was naked at this point. This was his outer robe. You see, in that culture, one of the ways you were known was by the color of the robe that you wore. So as you're walking down the road, maybe you're too far away for people to recognize the details on your face. They can't see who you are by looking at your face, but they do know who you are by the color of your robe. It was your identity. And so Jonathan exchanges his robe. He gives him his robe and his armor, his sword, and even his utility belt. Now, it's believed by, by ancient rabbis and ancient uh, Jewish commentators that, that, that what David had given to Jonathan, and keep in mind, it had to be unique. It had to be something that no one else could give. And so it's believed that what David gave Jonathan was his sling, the very sling that he used to defeat Goliath with. That's something that no one else could give. And so they, they, there's this sacrifice, there's this exchange of gifts, and in the process, they become lifelong friends. They become covenant friends for life. Even as it says in Ecclesiastes 4.9, it says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. You know, a lot of people read that verse in Ecclesiastes, and, and sometimes we, we, we think it has to do with marriage. In fact, I cannot tell you uh, of how many uh, uh, wedding invitations I've lost track of that quote that verse in Ecclesiastes. Two are better than one. Now, actually, that verse has nothing to do with marriage. It's not about marriage. Now, the principle could apply to marriage, but actually, that verse in Ecclesiastes has to do with fellowship. It has to do with friendship. It has to do with the idea that, that life is hard and you can't do it alone. Two are better than one. And so Solomon's saying, you know what? Two are better than one. And then Solomon in Ecclesiastes tells us why two are better than one. Because he goes on and says, because they have a good reward for their labor. Whereas the Living Bible paraphrases it, the results can be much better. If one person does it, it's good. But if two people do it, it's even better. But the idea is it's the journey of life. 
the idea is that, you know what? Life is hard, and you can't do it alone. It's hard. And so sometimes you need help. Sometimes you have to ask for help. But listen, the truth is, is that it's, it's hard to admit that we need help. It's even harder to ask for help. And so some of us, you know, we, we just prefer to do it alone. We, we, we prefer to do it by ourselves. Just, you know, kind of on our own, kind of isolate ourselves. But listen to this. The Bible warns us in Proverbs 18, verse 1, that he who isolates himself seeks his own desire and he rages against all wise judgment. In other words, if you think you can do life alone, you're a fool. You're a fool if you think you can isolate yourself and, 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 and flourish. Now, it's interesting. Some of you probably saw this a, a few weeks ago, but, but according to the CDC, that, that's the Center for Disease and Control, according to the CDC, uh, loneliness has now been declared a public health epidemic that's as deadly as smoking. Loneliness is as deadly as smoking. And they found that, that Americans are, are withdrawing from each other like never before. Americans are, are less engaged in houses of worship, we're less involved in community organizations, and we're less involved with even our own families than we've ever been before. Now, of course, COVID has, has, has worsened this whole epidemic of loneliness. You know, as we were forced to, to go into isolation and isolate ourselves from our friends and from our family and, and from our coworkers and basically from society. But the thing that's driving this epidemic of, of loneliness was not COVID, rather it's social media. In fact, they found that those who, who spend two or more hours uh, a day on social media are more than twice as likely to feel lonely compared to those who only spend a half hour or less on social, on social media. In fact, in an article titled, Is Facebook Making Us Lonely? Author Stephen Mark says, Social media, from Facebook to Twitter, have made us more densely networked than ever, and yet for all this connectivity, new research suggests that, we're, that we've never been lonelier. See, the problem is that too many of us have too many virtual friends and not enough actual friends. Not enough friends that we can touch, not enough friends that we can actually do life with, lean on when it's rough, you know, turn to when it's hard. And, 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 you know, and, and, so, and so as a result, we're lonely. We're lonelier than we've ever been before. We find ourselves saying, you know what? I don't have anybody in my life. I, I, there, there's no one I can share things with. I, I don't have anybody that I can trust. There's no one there for me. I, I, I'm alone. No, no one wants to help me carry this burden. And yet the Bible tells us in Proverbs 18, 24, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. In other words, listen. Don't wait for them to come to you. Don't, don't, don't wait for them to take the initiative. Don't wait for them to hit you up. You know, don't wait for them to invite you. Why don't you be friendly? Why don't you take the initiative? Why don't you invite them? Because what Jonathan and David remind us is that life is hard. Life is a minefield, and we cannot do it alone. And David didn't have to do it alone. God gave him Jonathan. And now as a result, in verse 5, we see that, that David was successful. Verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out uh, of, of all the cities singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as, as they celebrated, saying, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so first of all, in verses 4 and 5, we, we see that, 
that Saul sends David out to the battlefield. He set him over the war. He gave him a troop to lead. And then it says that this was good in the sight of the people and of Saul's servants. In other words, every time David gets a promotion, all of Saul's people are like, you know what? This is awesome. Right on. I mean, David rocks. I mean, keep promoting him. I mean, because, because the spirit of God is on him. David's our man. We love David. And so the picture is that, is that David was very, very successful, but, but at the same time, he was also, as we saw in the previous chapters, very, very young. The Hebrew word uh, for, for young in chapter 17 implies he was somewhere between 12 to 15 years old, maybe 16. 12 to 16 years old. He was, he, he was very successful, but he was very young. And at the same time, when, when, when it says he's very young, keep in mind, in that culture, you would have your bar mitzvah at the age of 13. That's when you became a man in that culture. 13 was kind of the new 18. <laughs> so he's very successful. Very young and also very available, very single. No wonder the ladies kind of had his attention, and and you know and 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 they're nuts about him. I mean, you know, he was kind of the, the the Chris Hemsworth of the day, if you would. They 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 even wrote a song about him. He comes from back from from battle, and and they're singing. They're like, you know, Saul is slain as thousands, but David is ten thousands. But from this moment on, we see that Saul's jealousy is growing by the minute. In fact, I think it's with that backdrop in mind that we read in verse 5 again that it says, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. Now, by the way, that word successful may not mean what you think it means. You see, we read this word and we read it like this. We read, you know, David had the, had the Midas touch. Whatever he touched turned to gold. I mean, he was successful wherever he went. You know, business and this and that. I mean, I mean he, he just had the Midas touch. But that word successful, it's actually that Hebrew word that I shared with you at the very beginning, that Hebrew word yasil. And it's not only translated success, but it's translated walk circumspectly or walk wisely. Even as it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 10, wisdom brings success. And so what it's telling us is that, is that the reason David was so successful was because he was walking wisely. But now we have to ask ourselves, what was David successful with? You know, we read it like, like well, he was successful in the battlefield. He was successful in business ventures. He was successful in politics. But really, I think the context of this chapter, the context seems to imply that David was successful in navigating and surviving the minefield of Saul's jealousy. I say that because the very next verse, verse 8 says, and Saul was very angry. And this thing displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while, while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And, and, and Saul had a spear in his hand. And, and Saul he, he hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And Saul was afraid of David. And by the way, shouldn't that read the other way around? And David was afraid of Saul. I mean, Saul was the one chucking spears, right? But it says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was, was with him, but he had departed from Saul. 
So Saul removed him from, from his presence and made him a commander of, of, of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success. There's that Hebrew word again, yasil, walk wisely. And David had success in all, in all the undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, there's that word again, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David for he went out and came in before them. So David's growing in popularity. The people are singing his praises. And as a result, verse 8 says, and Saul was very angry. The Hebrew term here is the Hebrew kara. It means means to burn within. And it's the idea of a slow burn. You might might say it's it's stewing in your anger. It's seething in anger. And so the picture is, is that as Saul's anger intensified, so did Saul's paranoia. And he's now convinced that David's after his job. He's convinced that the giant killer would be a king killer. Years back, author H.G. Wells wrote, wrote his book, The History of Mr. Polly. And in his book, he, he, he describes one of his characters this way. He says, he was not so much a, a human being as a civil war. That's Saul. Saul was like a living, breathing civil war. This war within. And literally, his jealousy was literally driving him crazy. He's going insane. And it seemed that his kingdom was was slipping out of his hand faster and faster. And it seemed that there was nothing he could do to stop the rise of David. In fact, it's like the more he fought against David, the more the people loved David. And so, (coughs) pardon me, in the next verse... Saul sends David on a mission. And yet we see in verses 17 through 29, David's new mission is really a minefield. So verse 17. Then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merab, and I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives in my father's clan in Israel that I should be the son-in-law to the king? But at that time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was already given to Adriel, the, the, the Meholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's, Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and this thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give, him, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him. Look at that. She's a snare. She's a a trap that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants to speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am am a poor man and have no reputation? He's like, you know, doesn't it seem a little fishy to you that he wants a peasant to be a son-in-law? And and, and by the way, I don't have enough money. I'm a peasant. I don't don't have the the money for a dowry, for, for a bride's price. So verse 24, and the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. And then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And his servants went out and told David these words, and it pleased David well to to be the king's son-in-law. 
Before the time had expired, David arose and went uh, along with his men and killed 200 Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. So now Saul comes up with with yet another plan, another strategy to try to get rid of David once and for all. Now this is more than just your average, you know, hold your friends close, put your enemies even closer kind of a thing. No, really he's setting David up in more than one way. I mean, on the one hand, he's setting him up with his daughter, but he's also setting him up to, to like, die. <laughs> you know, but he's like, hey, look at my daughter. Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she lovely? Hey, you can have her. She can, she, she, she's all yours. Just, you just, you, all you have to do is just go down to, the, to, to our arch enemy, the Philistines, and kill a hundred of them and come back with their foreskins as proof that they're dead. Listen, this is what you might call mission impossible. Because I hope I don't have to tell you that a that hundred Philistines are not going to give up their foreskins without a fight. <clears throat> and, and as we read this, we have to understand, Saul was not thinking, you know, man, I mean, you know, David is so valiant and so brave and the people love him so much, I've got to make him a part of my family. No, that is not what, what Saul was thinking at all. No, what Saul was thinking, you know what? David's so brave and so valiant and the people love him so much, I've got to get rid of him. I've got to send him on Mission Impossible and make sure there's no way he comes back successful. Make sure there's no way he comes back alive. Why? Because the people love him so much that if he comes back, they want him to be the king and not me. So what does David do? He kills 200 of them and comes back with their foreskins. But again, it was a trap. We know that because verse 21, it said that she would be a snare for him so that the hand of the Philistines would be against him. (laughs) So David comes back. He's like, here's your 200 foreskins. You know, and Saul, kind of like the movie Princess Bride, he's like, you know, inconceivable. And David's all like, that word. I do not think that word means what you think it means. (laughs) But this was a trap. It was a snare. It was a minefield, and that's why, as we pick up in verse 30, David had to walk wisely. Verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. So we notice for a fourth time, it says David had more success than all the servants of Saul. That's that key word. Yaskil. Walk circumspectly. Walk wisely. Listen, in this chapter, we've seen over and over, Saul sends David to the battlefield hoping that he'll never come back. Then he uses his own daughter as a, uh, to, to, to bait the trap for David. Then he even tries to pin him to a wall with his, with a, with his spear. And so over and over and over again, we see that, that David had been set up for failure. And yet, how did David come back from Mission Impossible alive? How did David navigate and handle the the, the minefield of Saul successfully? Answer, by walking wisely. By walking circumspectly. Listen, just as David had to walk circumspectly, just as David had to walk wisely because Saul was constantly dogging his steps and hunting him down, the scripture tells us to do the very same thing ourselves. For example, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, it says, 
See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. That word circumspectly in, in Ephesians, it's a word that suggests the idea of a circle. It's, it's the idea that, that as you walk, you look around you. In other words, you're vigilant. You don't want to get blindsided. You don't want to get fooled. You don't want to get tricked. You might say that as you're walking, you've got your head on a swivel. You're looking for dangers. Why? Well, Ephesians answers that question. Ephesians goes on in Ephesians 5.16 to tell us the reason why is because the days are evil. Listen, we are living in evil days. We live in a sinful, fallen world that is littered with landmines. No, no, listen, we like to pretend that, that this world's a playground, but the truth of the matter is that it's a battlefield. And yet so many of us are kind of just kind of walking blindly through it. We're like, you know, just, you know, walking blindly through this minefield. And as a result, we are stepping on landmines left and right and right and left. And then we wonder, you know, why is my life always a mess? You know, why, why, do, things, why do things keep blowing up in my life? Well, listen. Sometimes things go wrong in life. Sometimes things blow up. Sometimes things don't go as planned in life because us, instead of walking circumspectly with our head on a swivel, instead of walking wisely, we walk foolishly. We make foolish decisions. It's kind of like this marquee that I saw. This marquee that says, everything happens for a reason. Sometimes the reason is that you're stupid and make bad decisions. Let me illustrate. Listen, if, if, if you keep going to the bar, weekend after weekend, night after night, keep going to the bar and getting drunk and keep going to the bar and getting drunk and, 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 and then all of a sudden something happens. You're like maybe one night you get jumped, you get in a fight or, or, or maybe, maybe you, you, you get a, a DUI or you get in an accident or, or, or you get arrested. Listen, those things did not happen to you because you're a victim. Those things did not happen to you because, because you, know, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. No, these happened to you because you were not walking wisely. You put yourself in that situation. You made a foolish decision. You see, what we need to realize is, is that just as David had an enemy who was hunting him down, you and I, according to the Bible, also have an enemy who is seeking our destruction. The Bible says in, in 1 Peter 5.8, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so because we have an enemy who's seeking our destruction, because the days are evil, because this world is a battlefield with landmines in it, the scripture tells us to walk wisely. For example, Colossians 4, verse 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best of the time. Now, it's interesting. It tells us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Outsiders is just a term there that is referring to non-Christians, unbelievers. Listen, we all have outsiders. We all have, have non-believers. We have non-Christians in our life. Now, maybe, maybe it's, it's the people we used to party with before we became Christians. Or maybe it's an old flame from the past. Listen, what, what the scripture is warning us is that person might be a minefield. It, 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 there's an enemy, and he might be using them as, as a snare, as a trap. And so when they DM you, when they hit you up, and, and they're all like, hey, you know, I'm in town for the weekend. It'd be great to get together. You know, great to catch up, you know, for old time's sake. You have two choices in that moment. Number one, you can walk foolishly. You can walk blindly. You can fall for the banana in the tailpipe. 
Or number two, you can walk wisely with your head on a swivel. You can be like, you know what? There's an enemy out there and he, he has it out for me. And maybe he's using them as a snare, as a trap. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us not to be ignorant of the devil's schemes. Now the word scheme, it can be translated tricks or wiles or tactics or plotting. It's used of an animal that, 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 that stalks its prey and then pounces on it. And listen, in the same way, the, the devil is always plotting and always scheming and he's always on the prowl looking for someone to devour. In fact, that same word schemes, it can also speak of baiting a trap. Much in the same way that Saul used his own daughter to bait a trap for David. Listen, our enemy, he knows our tendencies. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our temptations. In other words, he knows what bait to use to trap us. I read of how polar bears often trap their prey. Now listen, a polar bear eats pretty much anything it wants to. But one of the things that it loves is seals. Now it also knows that what seals love are fish. Now, seals, oftentimes, they find a hole in the ice, and they, and they kind of wait by that hole in the ice, and they, and they listen for the sound of scratching from underneath the ice. That sound of scratching from underneath the surface of the ice is often fish kind of going by, and they kind of scratch up on the surface. And when they hear that scratching, they jump in, and they catch the fish. Well, polar bears know this, and so sometimes you'll see polar bears just kind of crush and crush and pound and make this huge hole in the ice, and then they jump in, they hold their breath, they go underneath, and they scratch with their claws underneath. They make the scratching noise. The seals hear that noise. They think it's a fish. They think, great, I've got lunch, only to find out they are lunch. The devil knows how to bait the trap. Maybe it's an old addiction from the past. Maybe it's your favorite temptation. Maybe it's something online. Or maybe, maybe it's an old relationship from the past. But listen, as we walk through the landmines of life, we can walk blindly. We can walk foolishly. We can say things to ourselves like, oh, I think I'm strong enough. You know, I, I trust myself. You know, I, I can handle it. Just be warned. Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Listen, if we want to get through, through, through Mission Impossible alive, we want to navigate the minefields of life successfully, then we need to follow the example of David. We need to walk circumspectly. We need to walk with our head on a swivel. We need to walk wisely because, again, Ecclesiastes 10.10, wisdom brings success. Amen? So, Father, we thank you that, that, it, that in this world littered with landmines, littered with temptations, littered with pitfalls, littered with things that are, are, are ready to take us out at a moment's notice. Lord, we, we don't have to blindly walk into it. So we pray, Lord, that you'd give us your wisdom, but then we would apply your wisdom. We would actually walk wisely. Many of us know what your word says about this, and we know what your word says about that. It's not our knowledge that's the problem. It's our, it's our will. Some of us just aren't willing to actually walk in your wisdom. So Lord, help us to be humble enough to surrender ourselves to your will and walk by your wisdom so we can survive the landmines of this world. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Brighton Podcast. To find out more about our ministry in Brighton, Colorado, go to calvarychapelbrighton.com.